Welcome everybody. My name is Dr. Alexina Mehta and I am delighted to welcome you all into the Infinite Gathering. We are hosting an integrative health and mindfulness conference and our theme, which is very appropriate for this time that we live in today is Awakening the Inner Healer. And I am so honored to be joined by Dr. Thupten Jimpa and welcome Jimpa. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation and on your platform. Thank you. Thank you, Alexina. We are so happy that we have an opportunity to learn from you today. And let me introduce Jimpa. He has a, a most impressive bio. So he was trained as a monk at the Shartse College of Ganden Monastic University in South India and he received a Geshe Lamrim degree. He holds a BA in philosophy and a PhD in religious studies, both from Cambridge University. Jimba has been the principal English translator to His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, since 1985, and has translated and collaborated on numerous books by the Dalai Lama, including the New York Times bestseller, Ethics for the New Millennium and the Art of Happiness, as well as Beyond Religion, Ethics for a Whole World. His own publications include A Fearless Heart, How the Courage to be Compassionate Can Transform Our Lives, and translations of major Tibetan works featured in the Library of Tibetan Classic series. Jinpa is the principal author of Compassion Cultivation Training, developed while at Stanford University in 2009. So Jinpa, I'm just so interested in connecting with you on this topic that we're going to be speaking about today, which is compassion in healing and compassion in healthcare. And many of our participants here today in the conference are on this personal journey of healing physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And they are truly interested in how they can live a happier and more compassionate life. And so I'd love to start off today by defining what compassion is from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective so that we can all learn. Thank you. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, looking at um, this very, very fundamental human quality that we call compassion at this particular time is I think very valuable uh, and also very important because um, you know, among all the various natural qualities that we human beings possess, uh, one could argue that compassion is the most precious one that is gifted to us. <clears throat> and by compassion, what I, <clears throat> um, you know, mean is the natural capacity to sort of, you know, feel for <clears throat> another person's suffering and need when you, when you encounter it and wanting to see the situation changed. So, um, so, and when it comes to the definition of compassion, there is really not that much difference across the different spiritual traditions. In fact, across between the spiritual traditions and contemporary science, such as psychology and neuroscience, 
you know, there is a consensus that compassion has to do with another person's or another being like an animal's situation or need and a suffering. It has to do something about suffering and the need. And it has to do, it, it involves the individual person who feels compassion as being moved by the situation, emotionally connected and moved. And then wanting to do something to change the situation. So on those broad you know, uh, <clears throat> ideas about what compassion, there's no difference at all. Actually, there's a striking kind of convergence across the traditions and spirituality and science, which really seems to suggest that it's a very fundamental human trait. Uh, because when it comes to other aspects of the human mind, spiritual traditions will have one thing to say, and science has something else to say, and philosophers have something else to say, and often there is a discussion and debate. But when it comes to compassion, there isn't any real substantive debate what it is. Now, the big debate that was there was <clears throat> on the part of the evolutionary scientists for a long time, there was a suspicion on whether or not there can be a genuine self, you know, other regarding, you know, other orienting, you know, emotions like compassion and altruism. Because, and that, and that skepticism was really coming from a kind of a philosophical ideology, which really makes the case that ultimate explanation of human behavior must be found in the pursuit of self-interest. And if that is the case, then it becomes very difficult to explain the phenomenon of altruism, which yeah. seems to sometimes involve self-sacrifice. <clears throat> so, so that is the only debate, but now science has really moved on and even evolutionary scientists acknowledge that compassion and pursuit of helping others is as fundamental as our natural pursuit of you know, the you know, self-interest. So, um, when it comes to definition, there's no real debate now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that humanity has gotten away from an altruistic approach to life in the, the last, let's say, many years? Well, I, I, I don't know whether humanity has actually moved away from it um, because we do you know, every culture values compassion, um, you know, at least in the personal life. Mm -hmm. And also in the spiritual domain, we elevate compassion as one of the highest virtues. You know, if, you know, the theistic traditions, you know, uh, identify mercy and compassion as one of the defining features of the creator. So you can see that, it's not that the human beings, we left and we also, for example, in our context of our friendship with others, our family relations, <clears throat> we value compassion, we value kindness, we bring kindness. Mm -hmm. And people are judged based on whether or not they're able to express that part of who they are in, you know, in, in the form of kindness and others. Um, <clears throat> and also friendships involve kindness. If people are not kind, they generally don't attract friends. So in our personal life and in the spiritual domain, we have not left it. Mm -hmm. But where we have left it is as a society in the shared public space, which, you know, over time became secularized. Mm -hmm. So in, the, in those public spaces, you know, and which includes also the public sectors, you know, uh, in, including such as healthcare, you know, it, that was the, 
that was one of the alarming part of contemporary approach to the healthcare, where efficiency and technicality was prized above, you know, fundamental human quality of kindness, which is which should be the spring well of healing, <clears throat> and social healing. So it's in the public space, and also, for example, like economic policies or, you know, policies that are governing societal structure. Um, in these kind of areas, um, you know, we have, and, and also when, it, when we talk about, you know, um, laws and stuff, um, we bring issues of fairness, justice, and so on, but not so much kindness and compassion. So I think it's, and part of that probably has to do with the evolutionary scientists' skepticism about whether something like compassion and altruism is real. You know, whether it is just a, a religion's way of constraining, you know, basic human nature. So, <clears throat> so it's in the public space. Um, and, and fortunately now there is a kind of a, a pushback and, and a reawakening of the need for compassion and kindness in that public domain as public space as well. Yeah. Mm. Yes, that, that brings up a very good point that bringing the compassion into the public domain centralizing it, being a, a spring well for healing, if we can focus our healthcare system from that, that is the central point from which all healthcare protocols and practices come from, then perhaps we can move towards the direction of the healing that each one of us is capable of achieving internally. Definitely. I mean, <clears throat> One of the things is that, um, you know, increasingly, uh, even science shows, the, you know, there is a very important role of the individual patient's mind and mental state and attitude um, and emotions in the process of healing. Mm -hmm. So because, you know, until recently, there was a very mechanistic approach to, you know, uh, you know health and human body was seen more like a machine and then when something goes wrong, you fix that part and you <clears throat> kind of, you know, service it. There was a very mechanistic uh, approach to dealing with health issues. It was very kind of materialistic kind of, you know, paradigm. <clears throat> but now there is a, a much more sophisticated understanding that actually patients' own mind and attitude and state of mind and emotion, um, you know, mental well-being really plays a big role in the process of healing. And, and, you know, a lot of that study is really coming from uh, the treatment of cancer, you know, <clears throat> and where the state of mind matters a lot. Um, so, uh, and, and, and now they are also within the healthcare community, for example, recently there was a book that was came out, authored by two doctors from the Cooper University of Hospital um, called uh, Compassionomics. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful book that makes the case why compassion matters in the context of healthcare, um, you know, profession. And um, what is powerful about that book is actually this book, uh, right from the beginning says that their job is not so much to tell the reader how to do it, mm. but really more about why we need compassion. Because how to do it is a, another uh, a question, but why we need it. And then they documented, you know, did a meta review of hundreds of research papers on various attempts at bringing compassion-based intervention in the healthcare setting. And they systematically listed, <clears throat> especially from the patient's perspective, 
on the benefits, including physiological, measurable physiological benefits, when the healthcare provider is able to show some kindness. And those are amazing. I mean, like uh, uh, impact on the cortisol level, uh, you know, healing of trauma, uh, blood pressure, you know, <clears throat> you know, prevention of heart attack, depression. It was the list goes on. And all of these are not just purely a psychological phenomenon. These are measurable, you know, kind of a physiological outcomes. <clears throat> so clearly, and, and, you know, all of us who have had the experience of being at the receiving end of the medical treatment, we know, you know, in those moments, in any healthcare professional, doctors, nurses, nurse assistants, and, you know, healthcare, you know, um, hospital administrators, anyone who showed some human emotion, some connection, some, you know, empathy, we remember it. We feel assured, we feel comforted. So from the recipient's point of view, <clears throat> the power of compassion as part of the healing is un, you know, indisputable. Now the question is, is compassion an important part of the physicians, the care providers themselves? And there, I think there is now a lot of work that is happening. One of which is, you know, a burnout is a major crisis across the healthcare profession, among, especially among the doctors, and in, in, in the states in particular. And there's a, quite a lot of research now, now on trying to understand where, what are the sources of burnout. Three key factors are identified. One is emotional exhaustion, so that makes sense. Second is called depersonalization. And depersonalization really means, you know, in order to protect yourself, from excessive exposure to someone's pain and you know, empathic response, you learn a sort of a safe protection mechanism by <clears throat> you know, uh, switching off and turning the patient into a number. Yet another patient kind of thing, you know? So even though it may work for a while, but depersonalization turns out to be a, a very unhealthy way of dealing with these you know, encounters with acute suffering. So, because it involves suppression of your natural emotional response. And, and then the third factor is sort of a powerlessness because a lot of the doctors feel they're caught in a system which doesn't move, electronic record keeping, and there's a huge amount of things that they need to do and they feel that they are kind of powerless, they can't do much. But the depersonalization, the most powerful antidote against that is to really embrace empathy and find compassion because the, and here I think there is something that we can learn from the contemplative tradition. The contemplative research and tradition shows that there is a distinction between empathy and compassion. Empathy involves primarily emotional response to a situation of someone's need and suffering. And you are resonating with that person who's in pain, feeling with and feeling for. But compassion is another level where the empathy plus wanting to do something about it. Mm. So in compassion, the focus now shifts from problem and the need to also a solution and action. And there are important research that has been done by people like Tanya Singer and her team, which shows that even in the brain, empathy and compassion actually differs. You know, mm. empathy arises and pain centers of the brain becomes very active which makes sense because you are resonating. But when compassion arises, 
they notice that the action centers of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, motor regions become active. You're getting ready to do something. As well as, surprisingly, the reward centers of the brain also gets activated because, you know, I think compassion serves as an outlet for empathy. Because if you are stuck in empathy and you don't do anything, then you get exhausted because empathy is primarily emotion. And emotional experiences generally are quite exhausting. Even a pleasurable you know, emotion, because emotions are not meant to last very long. So all of this suggests that you know, if the physicians themselves uh, want to protect against potential burnout, instead of suppressing your empathy response to the patient's need, it looks like you actually need to plunge in, you know, dive in, you know, make it proactive, but find an, a way to express that empathy so that you don't get stuck in the empathy for too long. And then, and this is where compassion really, so, and then one of the things about compassion is that, you know, all, you know, I would say all the, uh, you know, healthcare professionals who went into that particular profession, the original motivation that led them to there is wanting to serve and wanting to heal. Yes. That yes. is the fundamental original motivation somewhere in the process with the challenges and day-to-day drudgery of having to keep all the records and everything, you lose connection with that original motivation. Now, raising compassion allows the healthcare professionals to reconnect with that original motivation. And when you are able to do that, you then have a chance to take joy wherever you can help someone. And there are many opportunities for the healthcare providers to mm-hmm. see a real healing taking place where you are the active agent in making that possible in someone's life. So yeah. What more powerful service as a human being can there be to be able to really make that difference in someone's life, particularly when that individual is going through a very vulnerable phase in their life. So mm-hmm. I think what compassion does is to you know, bring up that power of motivation, provide that you know, one could say the philosophy of life, like a mindset attitude. And then it becomes like a kind of a standpoint from which you engage in your work so that whenever you are able to help someone, you are able to get joy. And the joy is what is going to sustain your motivation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is why compassion is so beautiful and, and so, so powerful. So, and in the healthcare setting, it makes perfect sense because your business is to heal and the motivation for healing has to come from wanting to serve and benefit and help. And that is the heart of compassion. And the the expression in which that occurs is a demeanor of kindness Mm -hmm. in that connecting, reaching out. Um, So I think compassion can be also powerful, not just for the recipient, healing, but also for the healer, for the provider. Uh, I think this is where compassion is really very powerful. Mm. Wonderful. What do you suggest for healthcare practitioners and healers? Really, you know, we all contain an inner healer within us. We're, we're all invited to, to express compassion with our loved ones and every opportunity that we 
or in the presence of another's suffering, we can contribute to the well-being of their future by expressing compassion. What would you su suggest as a, a simple practice that people can do as an individual or a healthcare provider to remain centered in compassion throughout the ups and the downs of life? Because it seems that when we get pulled off into a distraction of some kind, that's when we rush and when we lose that connection, we start to make errors against the innate desire to want to serve. So what do you suggest? I think the, 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 the most practical um, way in which we can make compassion a kind of a, a constant active force um, is to in the morning find maybe a minute or two to really check in and connect with your own intention. So before you go to work, just it doesn't take very long. It could be just a minute. Just you know, take a deep breath. And whenever you do these more contemplative type practices, it's good to first settle by taking a just two or three deep breaths. You know, just settling down so that you are calm. Because the, when the mind is too busy, and, you know, sort of thinking about hundred things at the same time, you know, it's difficult to get deeper. So take the moment to just breathe deeply for three or four times. And once you're in that slightly sort of more settled state of mind, then, you know, connect with your aspiration. Because your deeper aspirations are always to serve, to be of benefit, to be kind, um, you know. Um, and then once you have connected with your own deeper aspirations, then make a conscious intention so that, you know, as much as possible today in my interaction with others, especially my patients, people that I'm helping and serving, I will bring compassion into the equation. Just make that simple intention. That I think will, should not take more than a minute or two. So, and nobody can complain and excuse saying that they don't have that time. So it's just a matter of will. Yes. And then in your day-to-day -day interaction, when the actual interaction has taken place, you know, instead of rushing to the next one, take a half a minute to just again take a deep breath, reflect on what just happened. And when you realize that you have not been able to show your best part, then I think you need to bring kindness to yourself. Because this, because otherwise, what happens is that you you feel guilty, and you you feel bad about yourself, and it leaves a kind of a, a bad taste in your mouth. That experience becomes aversive, and next time you don't want to even think about it. So I think just bringing kindness to yourself is the way to go. But if you have been able to bring a better part of you, then rejoice, and then do the next one. And this is how you change. And at the end of the day take another minute or two to just look at the whole day and not keep scores, but just feel the, the synergy between the morning spirit and the reality of the day and round it up. And I think, so this, you know, when after the event, reflection is a very important part. And then the setting the intention, at the beginning is like setting the course. And then the reflection is a way of course correction 
and reaffirming the spirit of the morning. Those are very simple practical steps. Um, and, and one of the powerful things about intention is that the more you are able to do your intention on a regular basis, the more awareness you'll be able to bring into your interaction with others. Because awareness cannot be willed. Awareness either shows up or not doesn't show up. But awareness is a function of conscious intention setting and paying attention. And when we, the more we are able to bring awareness into any situation, then we, you know, because when it comes to our general intentions, we all have good intentions. We all mean well for everybody. Where we fall short is the inability to bring awareness into situations because of the challenges. So, and the more you are able to bring, and this is where contemplative practice is very powerful because contemplative practice teaches us this disciplined attend, paying attention, which helps us build the habit of paying attention when necessary. So, so those are very practical things. And then, um, and one of the things that, you know, one could do is that every now and then, if you're feeling kind of overwhelmed, then find a time to close your eyes and breathe. Because when you're overwhelmed, it does not help anybody, neither yourself, nor the people around you. So those things are very simple, practical things that one can use right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Because when it comes to compassion, we don't actually have to teach because compassion is a natural human quality. It is there. It's we just there, have there. to allow the, our sort of environment in our mind and life for the, this beautiful human quality to show up and exert its force. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the, the title of the book that you wrote is Courage and Compassion. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about, about what brought you to that title? To well, that uh, I mean, the part of the reason why I chose to bring compassion, so courage right in the title, is to really kind of, right from the beginning, um, you know, sort of address the question that often people have, where they feel that if they're too kind, people will see them as weak, People will take advantage of them. Compassion is softly, softy, you know, you know. So, so I wanted to just bring, address that question right from the beginning because I believe that a compassion to bring compassion into a situation actually requires courage because the opposite of compassion, like anger, judgments, are actually quite easy. You know, yes. they, you can easily bring judgment, criticism, and anger into a situation. But choosing to bring compassion actually requires a courage. And also, because choosing compassion requires opening your heart, mm-hmm. showing your vulnerability, and also giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. Because there's no guarantee that the other person to whom you are showing kindness and compassion is going to respond in a similar way. And you are basically saying, you know, my expression of kindness and compassion is not contingent upon how he or she responds. Mm-hmm. And that takes courage. You know, and, you know, one could easily take an easier option and just ignore the person. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, 
when you are able to take choose compassion, compassion also increases courage. Because when you bring compassion, compassion involves making fuss about other people's situation. And when you create room for other people's situation in your mind and heart, you develop a more resilient you know, mind, mindset. So that in that you know, space, you are in a much stronger position to deal with your own personal problem as well. Because you see your problem in a proportionate way. Whereas when we are too excessively self-focused, any problem that we experience in our life becomes huge. Yes, we are looking close up, you know, and we and and then the, the everything becomes about why me kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Somehow the world is conspiring against me, you know. Everybody's, you know, unjust towards me. Whereas if you bring compassion, you are allowing space for others, and that promotes um, courage as well. I mean, if you look at individuals like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Archbishop Desmond Tutu, they are truly encouraged individuals you know they and 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 the mark of that courage really manifest in the form of the way in which they have this very deep-seated sense of ease natural ease in their personality mm-hmm. you know wherever they are it doesn't really matter whether they're home they're traveling in another context there is this deep-seated sense of ease mm-hmm. that's because they don't have the heaviness that generally tends to come from excessive self-focus. And that's because of the power of that compassion. So compassion also promotes and fosters courage as well. Um, so I think that relationship between courage and compassion goes both ways. And, and, and the relationship is quite a tight one. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and one of the reasons why I also brought this up is that uh, you know, a lot of people in, in their life, because they are not choosing compassion, they lead a very anxious life, you know. Yes. They're always worried about what other people will say. They're always worried about, you know, the, uh, hurting others. And, and because they, they don't give that space for them to be relaxed by it, embracing the broader perspective of compassion, which basically says that everybody else is just like you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter what titles they have, how they look, you know, in the end, you know, when you strip down everything else, the yeah. fundamental equations are the same. You know, everybody wants their kids to be happy. Everybody wants to good health. Everybody wants to be prosperous. I mean, it's just exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, so with those who take compassion seriously, has that deep-seated confidence that you know everybody's exactly the same. So I think that's what gives a courage, and and you know, and that is also one way of dealing with this pervasive feeling of anxiety a lot of people have that because the world is confusing there's too much information you know especially parents have not much control over their children's life because of the digital kind of you know, access to the digital world there's a huge amount of sources yeah. of anxiety so i think bringing compassion into that picture and you know even your relationship with your children if you somehow provide that message that our underlying principle of interaction will be compassion you know Mm -hmm. we trust you you trust us as parents and love is the bedrock of our relationship and then within that let's fix whatever problem there arises you know it's it may sound simplistic but in some way it is kind of that simple actually 
Very much. And from what you're sharing, I'm getting the sense that happiness naturally arises when we approach life in this way, that we're, we're seeking happiness. This is how to be happy. Exactly. And yeah, and this is, yeah, it, exactly. So happiness is in the end, it's a byproduct. You know, and you can, you can create the conditions in your life for happiness to show up, but you cannot really. And choosing compassion and adopting that kind of mindset, uh, expansive mindset, is the, really the key to living a happy life. Yes. And t- tell us a little bit about your upbringing in your studies at the monastery when you were studying compassion and what that was like for you as a, a young man and as a student? Well, in the monastery, uh, of course, um, the, the monastery that I was a member of is an academic monastery, uh, but because it's a Buddhist academic monastery, compassion is a you know, very explicitly uh, a central value in the monastery. But on a practical level, the way in which the Tibetan monasteries actually work is because even though some of these monasteries are massive, the monasteries have created kind of a mini family structures within the monastery. So you have a lot of young monks and under senior monks, there will be three or four young monks living as a family unit. And each of these senior monks uh, like the parental figure, whose job is not so much to educate them because the education is provided by other scholars and classes and teachers, but that senior teacher's name, role is a bit like tutor's role in a kind of a Cambridge-Oxford system, where mm-hmm. this senior teacher is responsible for the emotional and material needs uh, of, of the young monks. And, and that way, and you form a kind of a sibling type relationship with your peers who are part of that small unit. And you remain very, you know, even after, you know, many years, for example, in, in many Tibetan monks do leave the monastery because the membership is very large. And, mm-hmm. But even those who are no longer monks will always maintain that relationship mm-hmm. with the senior tutor until his death. And within the member of that household, they're mm-hmm. called Sharpanchipa. And, and then the teeth, you know. So, so that relationship is really beautiful. And I think that's probably one way in which the compassion and kindness uh, is really reinforced in a practical way. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there are meditations and all the rest, but um, in, in the end, something like compassion, it has to be. Uh, demonstrated in action because compassion talking about compassion is it's not going to have any impact it has yeah. to be shown it has to be lived and in the monastery the way in which this happens is is this family structure that is there um, and and for me you know even though i lost my mother at a very early age when i was nine and mm. and you know because i was the first generation of children after the tibetans came into exile in india and the Tibetan parents had to work, you know, on road construction camps, so there was no opportunity for real family life. So I was put into a boarding school at the age of four, and, and then, so even though, um, you know, I did not really have a conventional family, loving family life, 
Because even in those schools, there were quite a lot of monastic teachers who were bringing these, their own personal experience of having grown up in a monastery to the school setting. I, you know, my childhood memories are, you know, it's, it's, I remember them with fondness. You know, it's not, I don't think I've, star, I, I don't have a memory of being starved of love mm-hmm. and kindness. So I think this is what makes um, the Tibetan kind of community experience very powerful. Mm-hmm. And we can use that as an example in a way and extrapolate that to the importance of community within healthcare, yeah. you know, among practitioners and and tutors and peers, mentors, and especially nowadays where isolation is something that is in the air, you know, we're, yes. we're hearing it, we're hearing about it a lot. And I think that's one of my concerns is how do we remind all of our um, caregivers that to, to continue to reach out and to maintain this sense of community and belonging yeah. to their well-being. Yeah, I think one thing that is important for everybody is, uh, particularly in this uh, kind of uh, pandemic period, is that at the beginning, because it was such a universal phenomenon, which our generation, in our memory, this is the first time we have actually experienced it. You know, 9-11 was a, you know, epoch-making event in uh, in the U.S., but it was very confined to U.S. Um, but you know, we are too young to remember anything by the Second World War. So this is really the first major, you know, worldwide global phenomenon where every part of the world was affected in a powerful way. So I think at the initial stage, there was a, after the shock stage was gone, there was a lot of, you know, sort of a feeling of connection, feeling of, you know, at a global level. But now as it drags on, and um, still we need to observe social distancing, then I think it is important to pay attention to the potential loneliness that might creep in. Um, Because, you know, we are social creatures, you know, um, and we are not meant to be, you know, alone um, and uh, not socially interacting with others. Um, You know, of course, there are some exceptional cases like hermits who choose to be, but then that's a different matter. But most of us, and also, um, sometimes we tend to hide behind our work. Oh, I'm so busy, you know, I, you know, I don't have the time. But I think it's in our personal self-interest to take the time mm-hmm. to make the connection. Um, because the need for social connection right, and need for spiritual nourishment can only be filled through a sense of belonging and community. Mm-hmm. You know, it cannot come through books. It cannot come through just watching things passively. It has to come through a two-way interactivity. And that can only occur in the context of a community relationship. Um, so uh, I think this is why I think the healthcare workers, particularly because your focus is so much about other, sometimes in the process, you forget to think about your own self-care needs. And in the end, every single person in the healthcare, and regardless of how efficient they are, they're human beings. Each mm-hmm. one of us is a human being. And just as there are needs of the patients, you have your own needs as well. 
and just as you know and and no one is immune to to the phenomenon of loneliness mm -hmm. and you know because we are social creatures so i think just being able to recognize this and acknowledge it and then make space you know and not see social interaction as an additional thing to be done in over and above all the busy things that we have to do but looking at social interaction as a way of healing a source of healing a source of joy source of rejuvenation i think it's often it's a question of attitude you know if we change the attitude then we are much more willing and likely uh, to do the thing and particularly the social interaction and with the beautiful thing about social interaction is that once you do it you experience joy and the joy reinforces it so of course these days we have to do the social you know um, uh, distancing rules and all you know all of that but still through zoom and sharing and you know because something like for example if you choose to systematically bring compassion into your healthcare profession as well as your personal life then instead of doing that journey taking that journey alone mm -hmm. it would be way more powerful if you find few other people mm -hmm. who are willing to do the same thing and you compare notes you share notes you you write your journals and and then you also the beauty of that is when you hear someone else sharing their experience you it it, it confirms you know what you are yourself experiencing mm -hmm. and then the journey can be you know, this is why in 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 the buddhist tradition you know one of the three sources of refuge in addition to the buddha as a teacher and dharma as the actual healing is is the sangha the community and the community yeah. is really as one of the three sources of refuge you know healing so i think you know taking that appreciating that fact is really helpful Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know that um, the or about the you know the a map of consciousness that in in Tibetan Buddhism there's a map, isn't there? Where well, there are maps, not maps, just one, yeah, not just one, yeah. And you know, in this daily life, what is the map that, from this perspective, is if someone was looking at it from the outside saying, okay, I'm here, I, where am I trying to go? Where am I trying to get to? And how do I do that? I'm curious to know a little bit about that process and how it relates back to uh, the virtues and the ethics and, and compassion. I think, I mean, <clears throat> there are various types of maps and generally maps are prepared for a specific purpose, you know, so whatever the purpose is, the maps will slightly be different. But in our everyday life, um, especially in the COVID period, uh, one of the things that is unusual about the COVID period is that for the first time, for many people, we are forced to be alone with our mind. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so there's, you know, you cannot just binge watch Netflix all the time, you know, after all your eyes go, you know, sort of crazy. So, and, and therefore, we can seize that opportunity and learn the habit of being comfortable in being alone with our mind. Mm. I think that I think is a really important. So there's a beautiful um, saying in the 
certain uh, Lojong teaching where it says that when among many, many, you know, observe your speech, when alone, observe your mind. Mm. I think for observing your mind, you, don't, you do need that quiet, you know, sort of environment. So, and, and the COVID period offers us one of those very rare moments, you know, especially if you're living alone, after you come back from work, you're alone and there's this. So I think with respect to mind, you know, some ability to observe your mind mm -hmm. without judgment is really helpful. And, and part of that skill would also involve learning to quieten it. So that, you know, because for most of us, you know, mind overtakes us and mind chases us, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, so whereas a contemplative practice or teaching at least suggests the possibility that actually we can be the master of our own mind mm -hmm. so that we don't chase after mind, but mind comes after our intention. Mm -hmm. And for that, I think some basic skills of quieting the mind, settling by doing deep breathing, because one of the things about deep breathing is that naturally you will feel the body settling in and resting in the mind too. And once you've done that, some basic deep breathing, and then simply as if you're listening to a silence inside you, just learning to be quiet, just being and, and comfortable with that silence is a way of learning to quieten. And then at some point, you will experience a sense of bliss, actually. I mean, you know, those of us who have love walking in the silent forest, we know there is a state of mind that is very beautiful. It's a kind of a... And those you can actually conjure, invoke in your, in your sitting. Mm -hmm. Once you're able to do that, it's, it becomes a beautiful gift because every now and then you can invoke it. So, and then once you have done that, then bringing some awareness into your mind, the thoughts that are dominating you, you know, because, and, and then just simply letting the thoughts arise, noticing them, acknowledging them, but letting go, not reinforcing them. And if you do more of these, and then at the beginning, it's helpful to do body sensations because it's mm -hmm. easier to observe. And once you begin to do that, you begin to sort of, you know, uh, refine the quality of your attention and awareness. And that way, and then you will begin to know yourself better. Because you're, through knowing your own mind, you know, you, you come to know yourself better. Because there are often a lot of things that remain beyond, under the surface of consciousness, which are a very important part of who we are, but we don't have access to them because they remain opaque. They only show up in extreme situations. So, and then you, you get your surprise, you know, to see those qualities coming out of you. So I think, you know, and so here, I think instead of looking for a kind of a map per se, it's more helpful to sort of approach it in this, you know, kind of very simple way of just, you know, so just watch and wait to see what, what shows up. <laughs> mm -hmm. So observing what arises within your consciousness yeah. moment by moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay, I have uh, one more question for you. So what are your practices these days, your own personal practices? 
Well, my own personal practice, because as a Tibetan Buddhist, um, I have a standard one, which I do regularly, um, which takes about half an hour, sometimes 40 minutes. But, um, and then once in a while, I'll do a more extended one. But the regular ones um, is a very straightforward, for example, I start with deep breathing, you know, settling the mind, quieting the mind, and then I um, sort of, you know, um, do the, um, uh, but, um, um, no, um, Manjushri um, Sadhana, which is the, you know, the Buddha of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I, you know, do the taking refuge in the three jewels for the Dharma and Sangha and reaffirmation mm-hmm. of my Bodhicitta intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the four imaginables, which is a sort of a chanting of, you know, the four lines three times. And then I do a Guru Yoga practice, which takes about 10 minutes uh, based on Tsongkhapa mm. and then his mantra. Uh, and then after that, then I do a compassion practice. Um, and then I end with, uh, uh, you know, there's a mind training text called the uh, eight verses of training the mind. So I just chant it. And then I end with a, a verse on Bodhicitta. You know? So that's my daily practice and it finishes within, within half an hour. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm reminded by a ritual that I believe I attended in 2012, the Lamrin in at Gaden, short yes, yes, yes. teaching. And uh, it was a, an amazing event. It was, I think it was about seven or eight days. I believe you were there. I was not there. Yeah, you weren't there. there. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that was the, the Lamrin. And we did a, the ritual was on cultivating bodhicitta. Ah, okay, yes, yes. And I loved it. It was yes. it was one of the most heartwarming ceremonies I've ever attended. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I found it so powerful. Well, uh, this is part of the uh, Lamrim teachings. At the end, um, at the conclusion of the Lamrim teaching, there is a formal ceremony of generating bodhicitta. And it's it's a, a ritualized ceremony where actually uh, you go through the uh, process of uh, the, the teacher sitting on a throne, leading you through certain prelimin- preliminary practices. And at some point you kneel on your knees and then repeat after him the, the phrases for generating bodhicitta, which is really kind of uh, preceded by generating universal compassion for all beings. And then generating the wish to attend Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. Uh, and then, um, and generally, I don't know whether the Solomons did that in uh, Gandhian, but it also ends with a beautiful chanting of um, uh, a passage from Maitreya prayer, which says that if I do not become enlightened during this period of Buddha Shakyamuni, may I be reborn among the attendants, first attendants when Maitreya Buddha the future Buddha will appear in the world. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful ceremony. I remember as a kid, you know, being moved to tears. Mm-hmm. Um, I participated in those ceremonies. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, it was uh, absolutely amazing to be part of that. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the Buddha of the future, the Buddha Maitreya? Well, in the Buddhist um, tradition, there is this um, belief that um, you know, the world goes through many cycles, 
and also that this is kind of pan-Indian idea of different, you know, sort of eons and stages. And um, so during these, what are called the um, eons of eras of light, there will appear a Buddha. Mm -hmm. So we are in now in the period of the Buddha Shakyamuni, who's seen as a fourth in a line of thousand Buddhas that will appear. Mm. And uh, the Buddha Shakyamuni was the fourth, and then the future Buddha, the fifth one is going to be Maitreya. And that's why Maitreya's statue uh, typically depicts him uh, not sitting cross-legged, but sitting in a Western style on a throne, mm. uh, ready to get up. So that's a sort of an indication of the Maitreya, you know, get, getting ready to, you know, sort of come to the world. Mm. And so, uh, and this is the, the future Buddha. And, uh, and in the Tibetan tradition, as well as in many other traditions, but particularly in Tibetan tradition, the mm. veneration of the future Buddha Maitreya is a very important part of the religious uh, practice. And partly because the future Buddha Maitreya is also associated with loving kindness. Mm. It's a Maitri is the Sanskrit word for metta. Um, yes. and, and the loving kindness practices are also associated with him. Um, so, and so the combination of being the future Buddha as well as sort of being the key Buddha figure associated with loving kindness is what makes him having a special focus in the Tibetan tradition. Mm. So you would have seen large Maitreya statues in the Tibetan temples in South mm -hmm. India, yeah? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Great for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and your experiences with all of us. I, I'm so honored to have been able to spend this time with you and our, I know our audience is also feeling really blessed that we can share in this space and in this energy to cultivate compassion and to continue on our path individually and collectively to create a brighter future that starts right now, that starts today. Thank you, and because it's also uh, for me an honor to have this opportunity to really kind of uh, uh, speak to a group of individuals whose primary kind of, you know, uh, focus in their life is to help others, to heal. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, this is a wonderful privilege to be able to have that ability to help others. And, uh, I want to take the opportunity to express my profound appreciation and thank you, and also uh, an opportunity to continue to request you to say, continue to remain engaged and motivated and take joy in your service. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. So you please feel free to edit. Um, in, the, in the 